Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Today, I'll be talking to our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, about the various controversies engulfing the White House, in particular the increasing confusion over its attempts to curb migration into the US at the Mexican border. But first today, it's the Turkey and President Tayyip Erdogan's unexpectedly comfortable victory in Sunday's presidential and parliamentary elections, which led to a warning by his main opponent that Turkey will now be subject to one-man rule. Stephen Starr is our correspondent there. He's been covering the election for us from Ankara, and he joins me now. Um, Stephen, we can talk in a moment about how divided Turkey has become under the leadership of Tayyip Erdogan, but I think first we need to acknowledge the extraordinary achievement here of a man who has led his country for 15 years, first as Prime Minister and then as President, and can still secure more than 50% of the vote in a presidential election. Why is he so popular in Turkey? It is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, and it's, I guess, the main reason is that uh, he's put in place a party, the AK party, that goes into every uh, neighborhood, every district, every sm- every town, no matter how small it is or how far it is from the, the, main, the main city centers or places of main economic activity there's a they have a presence right across the country they connect with uh with local everyday people uh, they draw most of their support from the conservative uh, rural classes and uh you know they're a force of nature i mean they're probably one of the most successful political organizations anywhere in the world over the last 15 years or so and uh what we're seeing i guess is you know 15 years on is 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 the uh the, the results of, of all the work they've put in in these small towns, in these even the middle-sized cities in central Anatolia, you know, these are places of about a million and a half or two million people that were up until the 2000-2003 or at least before the AK party came to power were backwaters basically with little industry, little or no infrastructure, uh, little or no in the way of uh, jobs creation and now they're, they're booming cities with, with exports, you know, Turkey has one of the largest car uh, exporters in the world, and it's it's really really turned the corner. And of course, on top of the actual facts and the actual money in people's pockets, is the fact that Erdogan's persona is something that really uh, resonates with a lot of Turkish people as well. He's he's not a guy who goes to other uh, uh, foreign capitals and sits down and, and begs for money or looks for for support to do what he what he does. I mean, this is something. You know, when you speak to people in Turkey and speak to his supporters, and even people who don't particularly like him or may not vote for him, they they love it when he's when he goes on the international stage and then stands up and uh, and puts Turkey first. And he was expected, of course, to win this election, but the margin was a surprise, wasn't it? I mean, he 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 avoided the need for a second round runoff by getting fifty two, just over fifty two percent of the vote. Yeah, absolutely, and and that was even with the the main opposition uh, presidential candidate Muharrem Ince running a very successful. Uh, campaign, you know, he managed to draw hundreds of thousands of people to various rallies in, in most of the major cities in, in Turkey, and there was a real sense that this could be carried forward at, on election day on Sunday, that it would be that he would be able to take uh, the president to a second round. It didn't happen. I mean, it's easy to be drawn into the, I guess the, you know, the, the exuberance of the opposition and then the if and then what could happen. But uh, you know, 15 years in power and, and uh, the groundwork, as I say, that they put in right around the country over the, over that time, has shown that people are slow to move away from from Erdogan. And uh, even given that th- that there are issues, I guess, emerging around the, the economy, what that's going to look like in in, in the coming years. Uh, I guess we, we should make a mention as well of the other presidential candidates, um, Salahdin Dermertash, who uh, ran. Uh, was a member of the uh, Kurdish-rooted HDP party. Uh, who's been in prison for the last 20 months in a city in northwest Turkey. In, you know, incidentally, it's a city 
that's as far away as possible from his uh, his root his roots or where his core support come from, which is the southwest, of predominantly Kurdish region. He got about uh, 8.4%. Um, there was uh, um, Lady Morale uh, Actioner who got about 7.4%. Uh, he formed a new party, a new party that was last year, um, and uh, the, the rest got a less than one percentage point. Um, so I mean, you know, I mean. The, the opposition did come together to try and and, and take down Erdogan essentially, but uh, you know it, it didn't happen, and it just goes to show, as I say, the the, the power of Erdogan and the power of his persona. And um, I'll come back to you in a moment, Stephen, about this um, the powers that he does have now as president and this kind of executive presidency that's now in place. But there was also, of course, a parliamentary election on Sunday. Just tell us something about what the outcome of that side of the poll was. Yeah, so the two main main parties in Parliament were, would have been the AK party and the CHP, which is a leading opposition party, which is a, a centre-right, uh, secular nationalist party. It's uh, uh, Arab Turks party, the founder of the Turkish Republic. Both parties uh, lost uh, seats in, in Sunday's parliamentary election. The AK party went from 49 to 43. The CHP went from, I think, about 26 in the last election in, in November 2015 to 22.6% on Sunday. Um, the HDP party, which, as I mentioned, is the Kurdish ruler party, did quite well and managed to overcome the 10% uh, threshold to gain entry to the party. And this is despite the fact that it's been targeted uh, in the in the media by the president himself, by uh, ministers all during the campaign as being associated with terrorism. And uh, they basically ran little or no campaign because they weren't really able to. They've had thousands of activists and supporters imprisoned over the last couple of years but they managed to get a place in uh, in parliament and they're they will be the third biggest uh, party in parliament with about 67 or maybe 68 seats it not, hasn't been fully decided yet so the main two parties as i say have have lost quite a few votes uh, the ak party as i must mention as well because it's in an alliance with a uh, ultra nationalist uh, party which is much smaller in about 11 percent will be able to keep its parliamentary majority uh, in, into the next cabinet, into the next next five years. So essentially, this this ultra nationalist party you mentioned there, the the nationalist movement party or the MHP, they're essentially the kingmaker in the new parliament, isn't that right? They basically are, yes, and they they really are in a place now to to uh, to decide what happens, uh, what Erdogan is able to do to uh, you know a considerable extent. Um, we heard this morning that the MH an MHP member was saying that the state of emergency would stay for a while longer, whereas Erdogan during this campaign made it clear that he would lift the state of emergency. So already, you know, it's only been a couple of days since the election and we're seeing some maneuvering by the MHP to try and exert their position and uh, what they want to happen over the next uh, next next few months. You know, uh, obviously the MHP, uh, this ultra-conservative party, is opposed to any reconciliation with, with, with the separatist Kurds or with any Kurdish element at all, really. And uh, it will be hoping that the uh, the Turkish government continues uh, its military operations in Iraq at the moment. And of course, it had been in a long operation in northern Syria during the spring. And uh, so I guess from the point of view of any reconciliation with Kurdish elements in Turkey or in Iraq or Syria, that's not likely to happen, even if Erdogan would like for that to be the case. And of course, even we're discussing there the parliamentary election, but... As we know, last year, Turks voted in a referendum to bring in a new presidential system of government. And that system now comes into effect as a result of this election. So in a way, I suppose it's it's the, the presidency now is where it's at. Can you tell us what are the main additional powers now that Erdogan will have as president? 
So the position of prime minister has been abolished. And I mean, this is it's no small thing, I think, because the prime minister, Turkey's been a, a secular parliamentary democracy for, for 60, 70 years, uh, uh, ruled by the prime minister of the state. That position is gone now. So that's 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 a major change, uh, a major change for a lot of secularists and a lot of opposition people to get used to, or at least people who who uh, who supported the, uh, the the form how the state was formed and how it was run during the, the 20th century. The president can also appoint majority of judiciary figures, which means that I mean it's been the case, of course, that he would have a significant influence over over who would be appointed and who would not be appointed over the last couple of years. But this now codifies his ability within Turkish law to be able to pick and choose who, who he wants. He can pick, he can also pick members of cabinet. And, um, you know, essentially what's happened on, on Sunday is that everything that he's wanted to, to put into place, everything he's campaigned for over the last couple of years uh, has been, as I say, codified, written and will be written into Turkish law. And, um, you know, he's, he's, got what he's got what he wants. What's interesting, I think, what the difference we, can, we should make when we speak about Erdogan and, and other uh, authoritarian leaders is that uh, for Erdogan re- winning winning elections is very important you know he really feels that he needs the maybe not the consent but he needs the the people behind him to feel like he can do what he wants to do I mean Turkey is, is not Russia or it's not North Korea and for that reason uh, elections are important and then for that reason they are also largely uh, uh, largely uh, clean in, in the running if not fair during the campaign stage. Yeah, I think that's a key point, um, Stephen. I mean, no, no one's disputing, I think, the actual result, but there are certainly concerns, I think, over how the election was run and how much airtime, for example, Erdogan was given versus how much airtime his opponents were given. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, when, when you turn on the TV uh, over the last week, uh, the Turkish state television, you'd see it's it's Erdogan on all the time. And if it's not Erdogan, it's uh, it's him or it's others talking about uh, the threat of terrorism from the, the HDP and from, from the Kurdish elements, Kurdish political elements. Uh, in in Turkey, but on the media there as well. I mean, has has the media sort of been entirely brought into into line there now, or is there any uh, surviving sort of opposition media? A lot of journalists and we know are there are in jail at present. Yeah, that's right. There, I mean, there's there's one small uh, uh, independent television station that is, I guess, broadly in supportive of the, the main opposition party, the CHP. But it, it really is astonishing. I mean, if you turn on a TV in Turkey today and you'll see his face. Everywhere you'll see his the journalists who write in pro-government uh, newspapers on TV. Uh, it's 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 extraordinary. I mean, I lived in Syria for a few years as well too, and it's 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 borderline uh, a similar situation, you know. So I mean, most there are a couple of newspapers left. Uh, Jumariet is a is a you know a very uh, well-established uh, independent newspaper. Most of their editorial staff and their, their reporters are. Uh, being investigated for allegedly supporting terrorism. But they're out on bail at the moment, but they're facing charges over the next few months. Uh, so in terms of independent media, it doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, that happened obviously since the, the failed coup in July 2016, when the state of emergency was issued, that uh, most of these independent media organizations um, were, were closed down. And what about term limits, um, Stephen? He's elected now for a five-year term, um, Erdogan, but are there, are there limits to the amount of time he can serve in office from here? So he can, serve for an addition, he can serve for an additional two terms, but I was reading also yesterday that if he calls an early election uh, before the end of his second term, he could potentially rule up until the, the early uh, 2030s. And uh, given his, his, uh, his, his love, I guess, for, for elections, 
that he's shown over the last couple of years, you know, who would bet against him against calling uh, early elections to see him actually do that, to, to see him actually rule into the, the early 2030s. Yeah, he's certainly not afraid to, to gamble and, and, and go go early to say if he thinks um, it's going to be to his advantage. But and just to clarify then, the, the 15 years he has already served as essentially the leader of the country, either as Prime Minister or President, that's discounted now, does it? The, the clock starts, the term limits you know, start now with this new system from, from today. Exactly right. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. There's a new, a new set of, of, of laws. The fact that it's, I mean, the constitution has been changed now. Turkey is governed by an executive presidency. And as you say, the clock is back to zero. Uh, even that he's been essentially in power for more or less, I mean, for the last 15 years, uh, uh, it's, it starts from zero again. And, and this, of course, brings us back to what I mentioned there at the outset about the opposition warning about one-man rule. So where does all of this leave Turkey's opposition, Stephen? Have they anywhere else left to go? I mean, in cer- certain quarters, you could say that elements of the opposition are not are not in a bad place. I mean, the HDP, for example, the Kurdish party, the fact that they managed to enter parliament as the third biggest party, that's a pretty pretty interesting, uh, uh, pretty in- interesting result for them. Uh, and I was speaking to some of their deputies yesterday, actually, they were saying that they got more increased support from outside the traditional support areas, outside the, 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 the Kurdish majority areas of the southeast. So they're getting the sense that they're getting support from people outside their kind of core identity politics uh, support, that they're appealing to other elements of, Tur- of, of Turkish society. That could see them, you know, if they were to keep that up, that could see them become increasingly important uh, in, in, in the coming in the coming years. The CHB, which, as I said, is the main opposition party, um, there are calls today for its leader to resign. Um, the man who, as I say, who ran for the presidency, Mohar Minje, uh, did very well in terms of he breached uh, the 30 percent uh, of, of votes that he got in the uh, the election in the presidential election on on Sunday, which is the first time the CHP managed to do that in over 30 years. So there's calls that he should. He should be made the leader of, of, of the party. That that party is, is facing a split. And uh, but as you say, the opposition is not in not in a great state. We'll have a very colourful, or at least a more colourful than normal, uh, parliament in Turkey going forward the next five years. But uh, you know, the AKP and Erdogan uh, reign supreme uh, for the moment. Okay, Stephen, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks for that. Thank you. And that was Stephen Starr, our correspondent in Turkey. It's to Washington next and to the ongoing controversy and indeed confusion over the White House's zero-tolerance policy towards migrants attempting to enter the US illegally from across the Mexican border. Suzanne Lynch is our Washington correspondent and she joins me now from there. Could we start, Suzanne, with a, a quick recap as to how we got where we are today? What did the Trump administration change about the way illegal immigration is dealt with at the Mexican border and, and how did the story unfold from there? Well, we need to look back to April when Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, announced that he was taking a zero-tolerance approach to immigration uh, at the border. And this meant essentially uh, detaining anyone who crossed the border uh, looking illegally, looking for asylum or just illegally without any papers. Um, But because of the way the law is structured, that meant that people arriving with children, um, that the parents would be detained in one place, uh, run by the Department of Homeland Security, their children, their minors would be taken from them and housed in another place, run by the Health and Human Services Division. Um, Now, this practice had been happening to some extent uh, under previous administrations, uh, but uh, the announcement by Sessions in April to kind of clamp down on this, that this was a policy, uh, led to a sharp uh, spike 
in these uh, in these events. So that is why uh, there was a lot of publicity about this, and it really emerged as a huge uh, kind of public relations uh, battle uh, for the White House in the past few weeks. And I think the policy that had uh, pertained before then was one kind of so-called catch and release, where somebody would be caught but sent back. Exactly. So what would happen is somebody would cross the border, they would be detained um, and they would be given a court date to reappear, but they would be allowed to, they would be set free in effect and would be allowed to walk into America, to, to live in America illegally and then come back for their court appearance, whenever that might be. But of course, what happened in a lot of those situations, though, those people did not appear at their court appearance. And so this is what uh, the Trump administration was trying to clamp down on. And now the controversy that then unfolded, we probably don't need to rehearse in detail about the the stories that started to emerge about children, you know, being taken from their parents and it caused really worldwide condemnation. And then last Wednesday, uh, Donald Trump sort of suddenly signed an executive order ending family separations. That seemed to take a lot of people by surprise, including the agencies really at the front line of the situation. And it brought more confusion, I think, than clarity, didn't it? Yes, I think where we are now and since that signing of the executive order has been in a much more confused state. You're right, Donald Trump, I think, reluctantly signed this executive order last Wednesday, in part because he was under so much pressure from members of his own party. A lot of senior Republicans came out publicly and tried to kind of um, walk that line between saying they were strong on border security, but at the same time, families should not be separated from the border. Um, and so after saying repeatedly that it was the role of Congress to uh, resolve immigration issues and that he there was nothing he could do, uh, he did sign this executive order on Wednesday. Now, part of the problem is that the executive order he signed, there is a flaw in it because there is a law, a decree um, from 1997 known as the Flores Agreement, which doesn't allow children to be detained more than 20 days. So the idea now that children will be detained with their parents when their parents are arrested is problematic because under the way the law is written at the moment, they need to be released after 20 days. So at the moment, um, the courts has not heard this, um, but we have a lot of efforts on board by the White House and by Congress to try and get some kind of a way out of this conundrum. And we may see something from the Senate uh, this week on that. But it does mean that uh, I think in reality, in practicality, a lot of people's hands are tied that, yes, um, Trump is saying that the children should not be separated from the parents and essentially they should be accompany their parents when they're detained at the border. In reality, now what we seem to be saying is that this is not working practically. And the last development of this in the last 24 hours is that it looks like they're going back to releasing people because they simply don't have um, the legal backup and the resources to keep parents and children together in a a detained uh, setting. Um, The President, Donald Trump, he did speak about the issue um, yesterday, Monday, when during a visit um, to the White House by King Abdullah of Jordan, who who was sitting, I I think, looking rather uncomfortable beside him as he spoke. And we'll hear a little bit here of what he had to say. We want a system where when people come in illegally, they have to go out. And a nice, simple system that works. You know, Mexico holds people for four hours, for five hours, for two hours, and they're gone. We have people for four, five, six years, and they never leave. So what is the situation on the ground now, Suzanne, do we know? I mean, is is the zero tolerance policy still in place? I mean, that's to say, are um, people illegally crossing the border still being arrested or or not? Or is it even clear? So, um, well, Jeff Sessions on Monday said that this zero tolerance policy would be maintained. He was speaking in Reno, Nevada at an event. Um, But within hours of speaking, there was news emerging from the border that, in fact, practically a lot of people now crossing 
with children, not on their own, but with children, are being detained first, but then released, um, given a court date of when they must reappear. So in other words, this this zero tolerance policy is not being upheld at the moment when it comes to families. When people are arriving on their own, single people, yes, they are detained as, as normal. They cross the border, they're interviewed, detained by uh, border officials, uh, and then they are, in many cases, sent to some kind of a detention centre, a bit like we have in Ireland, you know, um, in, in different centres when asylum seekers come they're waiting to hear uh, to hear their case and, and this process can go on years. So that's still happening. What doesn't seem to be happening is the, the separation of, of parents and children, but because they don't have the resources to put them together anywhere, they're effectively releasing, it seems, in the last 24 hours only, parents who arrive with children at their border. Yeah, I suppose the authorities in Ireland would probably dispute the word detention in terms of, but the direct provision, otherwise the direct provision service we have here is certainly a tough system. There is an argument that, that, yes, obviously the Irish authorities do not separate parents and children, but the reality is that a lot of asylum seekers are, you know, indirect provision maybe for years, although I know this moves this week to, you know, give asylum seekers permission to work, etc. But, um, you know, I think it's it, the reality of a lot of the immigration system here in the country, apart from the parents and children being separated, is that a lot of people spend a long time in detention centres that are effectively like direct provision centres uh, down around the border. Indeed. And Suzanne, there's obviously a human side to this and a political side. Just on the human side first, do we know if all of the children who were removed from their families, have they been reunited with their parents? Um, well, the short answer is no. The White House has said that over 550 children have been reunited with their parents, but that leaves about 2,000 children who have not. Now, they have said that they know the identity of all these children are working to reunite them with their parents. Um, but we have a situation now that a lot of the children who were taken from their parents at the border were put in, in centres, uh, maybe in Arizona, in Texas, etc. But some were, were shipped further afield to the East Coast, to Chicago. So, for example, um, the, the mayor of New York, uh, the governor of New York yesterday said that um, a number of children are now in care in New York, around 300 people, 300 minors, many of them teenagers, are in, in homes in Harlem and elsewhere around New York. Um, so now the huge the huge focus here really is, is trying to uh, reunite these children with their parents, some of whom may have already been deported, um, but most of whom are probably still in the country. Yeah, indeed. In fact, I was in New York myself last week and it was hugely controversial there, the fact that the federal government was able to detain these children or hold them or whatever the term is in, in New York State. But And the local, the, 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 the governor or the, the local authorities had no, no say in the matter. Yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting. I think one of the, one of the the trends this week that's emerged is that American people have been quite shocked to learn that children have been staying in in homes in their own cities for a long time. It's not just as I said, it accelerated under Trump, but it's been happening here for a while, and people didn't realise. And you're also right in that there's a there's a tension all the time in the United States between. Uh, local authorities, local law enforcement officials and authorities, and the federal government that has control over immigration policy. Um, and I think, as you say there, that that has come to light again with this issue of the children now uh, being sent to these states who really don't are not supposed to be involved in immigration policy. That's supposed to be a federal government issue. And that's the human side I mentioned, Suzanne. And then on, on the political side, I'm just wondering who is winning the political battle here, because the condemnation of Trump all over the place has been fierce, but a hardline stance on immigration is exactly what he promised his supporters, isn't it? I agree, yes. I think um, what we've seen is that in one sense, Donald Trump has played this quite well 
ultimately he did relent last Wednesday under this huge domestic and international pressure. But at the same time, he did not temper his language about the need for border control. And this is keeping his supporters happy. So there's been a new poll in the last few days that has shown that support among his supporters is now up to 90%. Yes, Donald Trump is struggling to gain support with other sectors of the community, but among Republicans, it is extremely high. So this is obviously playing well with his base. Um, Fox News, uh, the right-wing news channel here, which is extremely influential, has been completely taking the president's side on this, has been saying um, that uh, these issues were were going on in the country before Donald Trump took over. They say it's a media, um, you know, bias against him. And they say that while most people don't want to see children separated, etc., that really the public want to see uh, border control. And this is a kind of a... An, you know, and an effect that has, it was always going to be inevitable because the U.S. immigration system is broken and then you're back to blaming Congress. And I think Trump has a point there. There has been a, a consistent problem with the U.S. immigration system here that no no members of Congress, no 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 government has, has had, had the guts and had the, the unity to address. So um, over the years with different administrations, uh, this has always been the case. Um, and I think that uh, as a result, um, we a lot of focus is going to be on Congress this week, but I don't think we're going to see anything substantive in terms of a long-term immigration policy from them. And as always, Suzanne, there's never just one controversy attached to this US presidency. Another issue making the headlines right now is the, the, the trade war or, or potential trade war that Trump has ignited with other global powers. And there was an interesting development with the announcement by Harley-Davidson, the motorcycle maker, that it intends to move some of its production to yeah, to to Europe to avoid tariffs that the EU has introduced, and of course those tariffs were in reta- retaliation for U.S. tariffs on on EU steel and aluminium imports. How has Trump responded to this announcement by Harley Davidson? Yeah, this was announced on Monday, and stock markets here really went down. Um, now Donald Trump on Tuesday morning has been tweeting avidly on this. Um, there's been quite negative coverage in the U.S. press. Uh, the Wall Street Journal wrote a really viscerating editorial today about his trade policy. And as I say, they Harley Davidson announced that they were moving production out of the U.S., probably to places like Thailand and India, to avoid these EU tariffs that were placed on um, U.S. steel and aluminium. Yes, I said Europe, but overseas, I think, was yes, correct. Yes, exactly. Overseas, you're right, not overseas, but but outside Europe, to avoid uh, these, these tariffs uh, on their products. Um, and... Uh, the the I mean Harley Davidson had a choice here. It could have passed on these extra costs to consumers. It's decided not to do so and move production elsewhere. And this, as I said, um, produced a very strong response from Donald Trump on Tuesday morning. He was tweeting saying a Harley Davidson should never be built in another country, never. Uh, and he he sent a series of tweets on this topic and seemed to be suggesting um, that Harley Davidson should just be patient, um, you know, suggesting maybe something, you know, something is in the offing that these these tariffs will be avoided, even though no one sees that as, as a viable option at the moment. And um, this is obviously rattling the president. He knows that uh, this is sending a very bad message to his supporters that the idea of this iconic American brand is moving abroad and moving some of its production abroad. And of course, this is exactly why the EU targeted this brand. We also saw Jack Daniels uh, today. They've announced that they are increasing the price of their whiskey in Europe, um, about a quarter of their revenue 
uh, comes from Europe um, and they have been hit by tariffs on the European side. So that, that price is going to be uh, passed on to consumers in Europe. So I think there are real fears now that we're at the beginning of some kind of trade war between America and, and the EU and, of course, further afield because America is embroiled in an ongoing uh, dispute with China about various issues around trade. Um, last Friday, Trump said on Twitter that he could uh, slap a 20% tariff on imports of cars from Europe. That would be a huge escalation. It would affect countries particularly like Germany um, very seriously. Uh, we haven't had any details on that, but as I say, if that was to escalate, um, it could have a, a huge effect on the economy. And I guess this is an early indication, is it, Suzanne, that the, U, the EU strategy of hitting very high-profile US brands, it has the capacity there to, to embarrass the, the president, doesn't it? It definitely does. Um, it's it's, it's uh, targeted Harley-Davidson, uh, whiskey, um, some clothes exports as well. So, yeah, that is a strategy to try and hit him where it hurts, I suppose, um, and, and try and hit US-specific brands that are not competing with other brands. Harley-Davidson, obviously, is a very specific kind of brand. Um, and the fact that Harley-Davidson is reluctant to pass on these increased costs to purchasers, to consumers, shows how important the EU market is the brand that it's, it's more prepared to move production away from America than try and, um, you know, lose or jeopardize its EU customer base um, because of these higher costs. And um, Suzanne, anything else on the agenda this week we should watch out for? Well, I, I mean, we're coming to the end. Next week, Congress is, is breaking for the July 4th break. But I think another issue here that's really uh, gaining a lot of media coverage is this issue of um, the attacks, verbal attacks, I must say, on a Trump administration officials. On Friday, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the press secretary, was famously asked to leave a restaurant in Virginia. And there's been huge coverage of this issue here, big debates about you know the end of civility in, in discourse in America. And I think it's backfiring a lot on Democrats. Uh, a lot of Republicans have come out fighting on this and have used this, have responded really with glee to these uh, reports of verbal attacks on Trump administration staff and have le leaped to their defense. Um, and it's allowed the Republicans to change the narrative, to switch it away from you know, the images of, of children being separated at the border from their parents, to talk about the press secretary um, being thrown out of a restaurant. And of course, there's been an argument that these two things are not not equivalent. And, and of course, Trump has been the very person who has uh, encouraged incivility in politics um, and uh, with his use of language, etc., on Twitter. But I do think that is a problem for Democrats because I think the more they, they hit back at Trump's republicanism and Trump's officials, I think this is an own goal, really, and that it's playing... Uh, very badly for them in terms of the Republican press. This may hurt them uh, when it comes to the midterm elections in November. And we had on that row that extraordinary response by Trump yesterday on Twitter where he attacked the restaurant that that, that um, refused to serve Sarah Huckabee Sanders and implied the restaurant was dirty and so on. No, no indication he's any evidence of that. But again, you're left wondering, is this very clever diversionary tactics by Trump or does he really sort of just fly off the handle at everything that annoys him? It's very hard to know, isn't it? Well, it's hard to know, but it is interesting that yesterday at the press briefing here in the afternoon, Sarah Huckabee Sanders began the press briefing by addressing the issue in the restaurant in Virginia. And there are reports that Donald Trump instructed her to do that, that there was a fear that if no journalist asked about it, they would not be able to talk about it. And he really wants to highlight this issue. So I think there's a lot of strategy um, at play here. Um, uh, another negative for the Democrats is that Maxine Waters, um, a congresswoman from California, was caught on tape urging people to protest and to confront Trump administration officials wherever they see them. Uh, and this has been played repeatedly here on TV and is kind of, 
uh, being used as an example of why the Democrats are just, you know, not being able to cope with the fact of a Trump presidency and that they're inciting violence essentially among their supporters. So again, I think that has backfired a bit on Democrats um, and Trump, and it's given Trump and Republicans the space to, as I say, concentrate on another diversionary news story um, and talk less about the immigration crisis that's continuing. Okay, Suzanne, plenty to talk about as always. Um, Thanks a lot for that. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.